Hey guys, so we're hot off the heels of when I talked about how to be an ally and I examined the factors surrounding white privilege. Now, before George Floyd's death, there were so many rose-colored glasses surrounding how we perceive race, right? Who were like, oh, we don't have racism anymore and, you know, everything along that BS that obviously isn't, wasn't, and hasn't been true for years. So this week, I'm solely diving into race and all the facets of it. So race or a racial group directly relates to how we divide the human species into groups. Now, we see smaller groups through the concept of ethnic origin, which are identified as different races. Uh, When we see someone on the street or whenever we are, you know, maybe grocery shopping, we place people we see into categories. We are attempting to identify their race and group them. Now, taking into account the past, in the future, some studies have revealed that skin color changes over time in as few as 100 generations or approximately 2,500 years. In 1779, Johann Blumenbach proposed a classification that was used during the 19th century in regards to racial categories. And the breakdown of the races were the Ethiopian black race, the Caucasian white race, the Mongolian yellow race, the American red race, the Malian brown race. Now, Racism, which is an ideology, is thinking a particular race is superior or inferior to one. Now, we've seen this racism or the concept of racism play out with slavery, apartheid, Jim Crow, Japanese imperialism, with the Nazis, and let's not forget about right now with George Floyd and how Black lives are treated in America. So moving on to the mid-20th century, Stoddard created a race map which divided the human race into four color groupings. This included black, brown, white, yellow. Then Carlton S. Kuhn went further and divided the racial groups into five, which included negroid, black, Australoid, Australian Aborigine race, capoid, Bushman race, mongoloid, oriental race, a cascadoid white race. So while these racial divisions have subtle changes, we can see the big picture and how certain people are dividing them. So Charles Darwin spoke about how we adapt socially and the process of natural selection. The concept explores the outcome in animal populations with how specific species compete for limited resources. The concept has been widely known as survival of the fittest, and this phase was first used by Herbert Spencer and not Darwin. So social Darwinism was commonly referring or referenced during the fascist movements in order to understand race and society. During Nazi Germany, social Darwinism was used to promote racist ideologies about the Aryan race, that the Aryan race was superior. The concept was threatened by murder or it was, the concept was sought out by murdering those who were thought to be inferior, and obviously this was humans who could not be classified as uh, Aryan, specifically Jewish people, Slavic people, Romas, uh, gay people, and disabled people. Right now in America, the racial thoughts that many have kept hidden have come to light, but racism in a new isn't new, and it's literally been around forever. Um, most recently. If you read any of the newspapers in New York, a fencing coach at St. John's University actually was exposed from a Zoom call 
saying extremely derogatory things about Black people, including that they steal and that Lincoln made a mistake. And this coach was actually my fencing coach for a period of time, right? He managed to categorize Black people as a whole group of people who have the same likeness, the same mannerisms, the same thought process, right? That they were all one and the same, which was confusing to me. But in the same aspect, because race is a social construct, he constructed what he thought was how Black people operated. But it calls into question how he came to this conclusion when he was surrounded by so many Black athletes who opposed his definition of what Black people did, right? So right now, um, like I said in America, these racial thoughts are coming to light. And it's not new racial thoughts. It's thoughts that people had, they kept hidden, and now they're speaking their truth in some capacity, right? Even though they've put on a smile for all of us. And looking back, a lot of times I'm hearing people saying, how is this happening again? But the reality is that the Jim Crow laws were not that far along ago. And they actually lasted in the United States from 1890 to 1960. And those generations include my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And my grandma is actually still alive. So the vibrancy of her and thinking about the endurance of racism really, you know, hits home for me. And if we look at the Nuremberg Laws and the Holocaust, which took place between 1935 and 1945, we can see how racism really, you know, takes place in all parts of this world. So looking at South Africa, we saw apartheid rising up after 1948. And let's not forget about the white Australia policy in Australia. And obviously still extremely prevalent in the United States is the KKK or the Ku Klux Klan, which is a white supremacy group. So as humans for centuries, we have categorized ourselves. And this was not done, um, and this still really isn't done on ancestry, but it's mostly based on visual traits like facial features and skin tones, right? Now, humans a part of the same ethnic group are often connected by ancestry in some sense, meaning speaking the same language, having the same culture, or living in the same area. But looking at the feedback of scientists on ethnic groups, it has been concluded that humans don't fit well into these types of groupings, biologically speaking. So I've always lived in diverse areas. So growing up in New York City, I was immersed in various groups from social economic groups to race to ethnicity. So diverse living environments was something I always looked to attain in my lifestyle. Once moving to Ohio for college, I still was in a diverse climate. And now in Chicago, same thing. This partly has to do with living in major cities and the diversity that comes along with it. And going to a very large research university also gave a you know variety of people who I was able to interact with and learn from. So there's evidence that from uh, genetics and um, just archaeology that suggests as, that we as humans all originate from the same group of humans in East Africa. So this means directly. This directly means that the different races is not just appearing at different times. So there's evidence from genetics and archaeology that suggests that we humans all originate from the same group of humans in East Africa. 
And so this means directly that different races is not just appearing at different times. So all humans come from the same race and then separate into different races at later points. Historically, we have seen and see why people have had more power. And the concept of racism against white people has been coined reverse racism. There are people out there who perceive, you know, affirmative action and similar color conscious programs as anti-white programs. Now, this opinion to me is extremely absurd. This also kind of goes back to the all lives matter movement when someone, you know, counteracts your argument with all lives matter when you're talking about black lives matter, right? And the uh, reverse racism is directly how racism, you know, impacts white people, right? But the concept of reverse racism is mostly linked to conservatives and conservative social movements. As many times I hear this concept of reverse racism, there is literally little to no empirical evidence that white Americans suffer systematic discrimination. Now, I'm specifically referring to white Americans and white privilege in America. And minorities often lack the power to even damage the interests of whites. And so the concept of reverse racism really doesn't have a leg or even a toe to stand on. Now, Amy E. Ansel of Emerson College identifies three main claims about reverse racism. The first is that government programs to readdress racial inequality creates invisible victims in white men. Two, the racial um, you know, preferences violate the individual right of equal protection before the law. And three, the color consciousness itself prevents moving beyond the legacy of racism. So the concept of reverse racism has also been used to uh, characterize various expressions of hostilities or indifferences towards or indifferences towards white people by members of minority groups. And still when I hear this argument, I I really wonder to myself, like, do you understand your privilege? Do you understand who you are? I mean, do you understand what power you hold in our society? To go on that ledge and say that you are a victim of reverse racism calls into question the actual or just the racism that we see happening in America against minorities. And then you saying, oh, well, they're you know, exerting reverse racism. It's it's honestly um, jaw-dropping to me to really, you know, when someone says that, and I'm just like, what are you talking about? It doesn't make sense to me. So anyway, moving on now, racism in America has never gone away, right? It, it hasn't. It's, you know, maybe put on the invisible cloak, someone might say, from Harry Potter, but it's always been here and it stays a major issue even before the country was formed. Historically, the beginning of our country was um, led by white settlers and then, you know, bringing in black slaves into the mix with white ethnic groups as indentured servants, then you have it. It's pretty much a mixing pot for racism. And that has been embedded into the foundation of America. We see generation after generation, the racist attitudes and ideals placed on Native Americans, African Americans, and racially ambiguous individuals. From the Chinese, the Irish, the Japanese, to the Mexicans, we see that racist policies, racist ideals, racist attitudes have been placed on every single group that I've mentioned. So from Jim Crow laws to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, we see how racism has become a systemic problem in America. 
And just like it's embedded into the foundation of our country, it's embedded into our justice system. No one can ever discredit the millions of Africans who were imprisoned and placed on slave ships. But now, as I get to present-day issues, the United States legal system has continuously been accused of racism. 40% of our prison population are Blacks. And that's in comparison to the population in America, which is 12%. Those two numbers are completely ridiculous. Now, racial profiling might as well be the new Jim Crow, right? And so when we see, or if someone were to, I think if someone comes to the argument that you see more arrests, more, you know, um, legal violations in more ethnic neighborhoods is because these neighborhoods are being policed to a higher extent than their neighboring white neighborhoods. So if you're placing more police officers in Black, Hispanic, Asian neighborhoods, then you're more likely to see a crime happen, right? Thus, you see obviously fundamental parents, fundamental people in children's lives being taken out. We see that more of our Black men, we see even Black women being placed into the prison system. And it's at a higher rate because they're being policed at a higher rate. Now, when you look at the New York Police Department, um, when they implemented stop and frisk programs, the fear of looking dangerous while Black moved to a whole new level. Now, if you've ever listened to me before, you'll know that I love To Kill a Mockingbird and will recommend it over and over and over again. And the novel focuses on race during the Jim Crow era, so I highly recommend ordering it on Amazon and reading it while you're still um, stuck at home. So, as we enter the 21st century, the ideals of whiteness impacts non-white people's vision of success has been more evident than ever. The racial influences of success manifest in advantages that are tangible and seem directly related to skin tone. In South Africa, the apartheid laws directly denied the rights of non-whites and specifically Black South Africans to live their lives, essentially. This allowed um, for Black South Africans to not be allowed in certain areas. And Black South Africans were also expected to carry passes, or also known as special papers, for where they were allowed to be and where they were allowed to live. Interracial marriage was opposed, but so much more was their opposition when it came to Black and white South Africans versus white and non-white South Africans. We saw this officially opposed with the Prohibition of Mixed Marriage Act of 1949, which prohibited marriages of different races, and the Immortality Act of 1950, which made sexual relations with different races a criminal offense. So as I keep expressing that race is a social construct, we're at a point where many of us or many people surround ourselves with, are multiracial and mixed race. And with this racial rise of ignorance that we're seeing bluntly, we see a lot of us having to get political about who we are and how we view ourselves. Now, every mixed person doesn't look alike. We obviously know that, right? Some are white passing, others are racially profiled. But culturally, the racially profiled person could be more white in regards to how they were raised, who they were raised by, what parents and parental figures were involved in their lives. So, when Nelson Mandela became South Africa's first president, first black president in 1994, Mandela actually ended apartheid. And I want you to really think how, I mean, how not, it was not long ago that 1994 was. I mean, I was born in 1996 and I just turned 24. So 
thinking about the world that I live in and how I, I grew up feeling like everything was so diverse that I had an equal chance at everything I can accomplish that, you know, my parents always told me that I could, you know, reach whatever goals that I wanted to. And thinking that two years before I was born, apartheid was just ended is a radical and crazy and mind-blowing thought. I think it's really important that I touch on the base and the difference between systemic and systematic in regards to racism, because obviously I am using those words and some people find them interchangeable. So we should definitely clarify that. So systematic relates to an action that's done according to some system or organized method, right? So systematic is used when a behavior, um, even if it's completely unintentional, um, is so habitual, so normalized that it becomes a result of a system. So in regards to systematic racism, if every time you see a black man on the street and you decide to move away, someone would say that is the result of a systematic problem of how we perceive black men in our community, right? Now, systemic describes something that happens inside a system or affects all parts of a system, right? So, it can, um, you know, really denote something that's deeply ingrained in the system. And that has to do with if we talk about the mobility of Blacks in our society and how the disadvantages of Blacks, minorities, and different races has been um, ingrained into how we work. So a systemic response would be someone saying that you need to work 130% as a minority versus someone who is white because that's ingrained in our society. So the word systemic and systematic when talking about systemic racism, right? So um, it doesn't exist as a result of the system. It is the system. So I just want to make sure we are all on the same page about that because sometimes I think when you're, you know, getting really uh, hot and heavy about a point you're making, you definitely want to make sure you're using the right verbiage. So just want to make sure we clarified that. So I did a deep dive or I did a partial dive into races, how races, how we categorize people and how it's really impacting how we see the world, right? And I think it's crazy um, how uncomfortable our society, our generations, um, our the people that we surround ourselves with are, how they feel about talking about race. It makes them feel weird, right? Talking about race, talking about racism is weird to people. It makes them uncomfortable. Calling someone racist is extremely offensive for some people, right? But often um, these three categories believe that white people are superior, right? They believe in the concept of racism in our society, but they don't want to talk about, you know, how we got there, right? So if you're uncomfortable with talking about race, you need to understand or try to understand how race directly impacts you because you're avoiding talking about something that is directly impacting your life every single day. And that's from being a minority to being someone with privilege, right? So when you decide not to talk about race, you it's something that's already in your face. If you're white and you don't talk about race, you are literally talking about something that you benefit off every single day. If you are a minority and you don't talk about race, you are, you know, 
leaving out a critical conversation that really impacts you as a person every day, regardless of your accomplishments and who you are, right? Saying all lives matter, we know that. Yet needing to justify that Black lives that are being killed matter is not okay. So yes, we need to understand and talk about race. We say everyone needs to be treated equally, but people for decades have facilitated and endured the disproportionate, disproportionate mistreatment of Blacks, Indigenous, and people of color, right? We hear all the time that people don't see color. I think the most memorable um, time I heard that was watching the Real Housewives of Atlanta reunion and Kim Bierman said, I don't see color. And I just, I was in awe because I was like, of course you don't see color because color doesn't impact you, right? But you see color. You just don't take it to the next step of after you see it. You don't internalize it, right? So go ahead and talk about race. Understand why you don't need to see color, right? Understand the privilege you have and understand how our society has evolved from this because this isn't a new concept. This isn't going anywhere and it's definitely not going to change if you don't say anything about it. Now, um, as you know, people say that we're moving to a more progressive society, I think it's extremely important to talk about prison labor, right? We know that in our country that there is a disproportionate amount of Black and Brown people who are currently in the prison system, right? And we cannot accurately have racial equality when we have prison labor currently going on, right? So if we look at the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in 1865, um, the amendment included uh, an exception that allowed the government to use servitude as a punishment for crime. Now, inmates can be forced to work and are threatened with uh, solitary confinement or even um, just the revoke of seeing um, families if they refuse to work. It's really simple. But the percentage of able-bodied federal prisoners required to work in prison is 100%. Now, the minimum hourly wage for a prisoner is 23 cents, right? The maximum hourly wage for a prisoner is $1.15. Now, um, These wages are for inmates who work for um, the government prison labor program. So many other inmates are forced into physical labor within their assigned prisons for no pay. This is specifically the ones who are able to get paid, right? So currently the percentage of inmates that are people of color is 73%. That number is ridiculous. And currently the percentage of inmates that are black are... 38%, right? Now that's of that bigger number. And so companies that still use prison labor as of 2019 include American Airlines, Target, Wendy's, Nintendo, Starbucks, Walmart, Victoria's Secrets, right? So what can you actually do about this? Now, um, if you go to change.org, there is an abolished prison labor in the United States 
petition. You can boycott companies who continue to use prison labor, right? And uh, I've also said this before, um, and I also have a doc on my website, info, where I have a list of educational resources for people who are looking to understand their privilege or just learn a little bit more about, you know, society we live in. So that's on my website, but watching 13th on Netflix is definitely a start. Reading about prison labor is Modern Slavery um, by Kevin Rashid Johnson from The Guardian is also something that I find super important. Now on the concept of race, and I think I, I am, the concept of saying you are colorblind has to be one of the most annoying things next to being in line at Starbucks and someone completely remaking a caramel macchiato, okay? Because saying you don't see race and that we are all one human race completely demeans everything that's going on in society, and it means that you are completely detached from the world that we live in, right? Yes, we're all human, and biologically, we are all the same, and that's the whole issue. That's why saying Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter is the issue, because we are all biologically the same. But the systemic oppression of Black people make the experience of Black individuals versus other individuals extremely different, right? And to say that, you know, you don't see race means you don't see oppression, that you don't see communities being marginalized, that you don't see discrimination as happening on a daily basis, right? This diminishes suffering. This excuses people's responsibility from being anti-racist. And if you cannot see race, you cannot combat race. So you have to be able to not be colorblind. You have to be able to see who is in front of you and the, um, how society treats them in order to even attempt to combat race, right? And so I think even not to the extent of someone saying they're colorblind, but saying that someone being offended that they you think they said something racist and then, you know, having to say, you don't understand what I'm saying. Well, the reality is that you probably did say something racist, right? And usually it's unintentional because our society has made it okay for racism to exist, right? Maybe you had good intention, but racism still stands, right? Whatever you said, you need to understand that your actions may be embedded in something deeper, embedded in the fact that the foundation of our country has been built on racism, right? You need to give Black people the benefit of the doubt when they call you out on your racist behavior, right? Because unlike many people, being Black in America means knowing that you're Black every second of your life, right? So don't suggest that you that whoever's talking to you does not understand you, right? That they are not listening, but instead confront your racist ideologies and how they come out of your mouth. Maybe what you're saying is something that's embedded in racism that you were just taught. Maybe it's been something that's been fundamental to you and you've never thought about it, right? And so um, even moving a little bit, we're moving the needle, right? So saying, I'm not a racist person, right? Obviously, um, there's this whole 
good non-racist versus, you know, a bad racist binary concept, um, which really oversimplifies uh, racism, right? Racism is often um, subconscious, it's undetected, and it really comes out of the privilege that someone's born with, right? Racism isn't just something that bad people exert, right? They're not just saying the N-word, you know, at everyone and they're just hateful people. People exert their racism through their privilege. It is just, it's pretty much a side effect of it, right? So you need to honestly put more effort into understanding the words you say and how you perceive race around you and even how you perceive your friends. If you have a diverse group of friends, question how you look at your friends. What do you assume from your friends? And those little notions that may seem harmless are extremely impactful, right? And I think uh, the... One of the um, biggest ones I hear when people feel uncomfortable talking about race and talking about racism and talking about racist is that they are not responsible for what their ancestors did, right? The reality is that we live in a society that was built on the backs of African Americans, right, for the benefit of white people, right, slave owners, etc., right, generational wealth, prosperity, um, opportunities has been a has been birthed from the society that's been built on the backs of blacks, right? So you need to recognize that injustice isn't just right now. The point that you're at and the point that someone who is a person of color is at is directly a result of what has happened before, right? Not being able to understand that yes, you didn't directly do this, but you benefit off that is you your minimum is understanding that you play a part in the racism in our society, right? Because today's injustices didn't start today. So um, now if we think about the impact of race in 1994, when Nelson Mandela became South Africa's first president, black president, he ended apartheid, right? And, when we really think about that, that obviously wasn't that long ago, but I think people will compare the racism in America to apartheid saying how different it is, but I think there is this rose-colored glasses that people wear in terms of acting like racism isn't there because of um, the various lawsuits that have placed diversity in you know, our everyday lives versus the seated um, feelings that people have around us that obviously have gotten us to this point. So now here in America, there's various ethnic groups. If you ask your parents or most people, their ancestry is not from America and it's not usually just from one place. So when someone firmly says their ancestry is American, they're usually from the South or they're referring to families who were here before the American Revolution. The most common race in the United States is white, and this is usually in reference to Europeans or Middle Easterns. Now some of these individuals' ancestors were indentured servants at some point throughout America's history. Now, Black or African Americans refer to people who are from most uh, parts of Africa and were obviously brought over during the slave trade. Now, Asian as a racial category includes people from China, Japan, um, right, the Philippines, South Asia, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about. But Native Americans or American Indians are the group of people who have lived in America for thousands of years prior to the United States. And Hispanic or Hispanic Americans can actually be of 
any race. So I think a lot of times when, if you ever take a standardized test or you felt any documentation where you have to list your race, you'll see Hispanic. And I think this is something that really um, might confuse people. I have Spanish friends who have asked me like, oh, what do you check in terms of they're trying to reference themselves and how they identify themselves within that Hispanic label. Um, so just like I mentioned, it's really key to note that Hispanic is not a race, but an ethnicity. So when people talk about race, they sometimes use the term race and ethnicity interchangeably. And that's wrong. But the top three ethnic groups in the United States are majority white, and they include German Americans, which make up approximately 42.8 million Americans. And many Germans came over in the 19th century, beginning, well, the 19th century and then the beginning of the 20th century. The largest number of Germans are actually found here in the Midwest. And then the second largest group is our Irish Americans, and they make up about 30.5 million, you know, people in America. And these are people who um, actually just identify as Irish. And the third largest ethnic group is African-Americans with 24.9 million. And these are people who identify as African-American, right? And the largest amounts of African-Americans can be found in Southern states. Now, at this point, I'm sure you heard me just using the word identify when referring to races because I like to keep saying that race is a social construct, right? And anyone who may say, oh, no, it's not, pretty much when you have Harold Ford, Holly Berry, and Denzel Washington all checking off black on the census, the racial label of black versus the physical characteristics differ. Earlier um, in this episode, I mentioned that race was how pe- people formed race on physical traits and obviously other factors, but mostly visual factors, right? So there's not a fixed visual factor of a race. So when we label ourselves or label others, we're usually using familial uh, context clues, right? Or familiar context clues. So when I was in Israel and I visited the wall, I was actually stopped um by someone and they asked me if I was Israeli and Ethiopian and I responded no I'm American now that response wasn't exactly answering the question because I could be Ethiopian and Israeli and be born in America right but the question at its core was asking if I was mixed race and because I was in the Middle East the two you know I mean, there's a lot of Ethiopians in Israel. It just made sense as someone who might be mixed race to assume I had lineage from those two places, right? And I get that question often because I have blue eyes. I have lighter skin in regards to the color spectrum of blacks, right? I have a broader nose, though. I have bigger lips, right? So these features that I have are tend to keep isolated with certain races. So people feel the need to obviously take my features and kind of unfold their own understanding of my lineage. The most potent argument for racial origins, if it's Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, Asia, or early American civilizations, is the differing physical traits that have evolved from isolation. So this is like curly hair or straight hair, your skin pigment and facial features. And so the reason why someone like Holly Berry, who is 50% black and seal with both check off black on the census, is because race is a social construct. Simply, race is an idea and it's not a fact. Race does not need a biological backing. It simply needs a set of eyes. The concept of race has been uh, challenged by scholars that race is a, it's 
on a biological basis, right? Researcher uh, Neil Reich, after looking at genetic structure and self-description, he said there was a 99.9 concordance. And we can see the understanding of race as a social construct throughout, you know, most all periods of American art. And I'm talking about specifically post-1980 art, right, indirectly and directly explores race. Now, I think throughout this, you're probably, you know, questioning your own understanding of race and what it means, right? And that race takes, race changes throughout, you know, spaces. You can be in one country and you are perceived as something and you can go to another continent and be completely perceived as something else, right? But I think it's also important that I have been saying Black and African American and to talk about just the term Black, right? Because I think a lot of times when I hear people saying the word black or they use brown interchangeably, there's a political um, of the aspect associated with identifying as black versus, you know, something as African-American, which people might find um, not as political, right? So black with a capital B actually refers to people of African-American diaspora, right? But the lowercase b in black is just literally a color. So I actually make sure anytime I'm referencing anything that I think the capitalizing of the b in black is extremely important, right? So the capitalizing of the b in black is actually not universally accepted, right? And it's really common to see uh, black in reference to race in a lowercase, even though other racial groups like, you know, uh, Latinx, uh, Native Americans, Asian Americans, right, those are all routinely capitalized. But major publications like the New York Times, even other major news outlets have um, adhered to the actually AP style book and do not call for the reference of Black having a capital B. But it is evident that uh, anti-blackness is, you know, evident in many aspects of the United States, right? And that includes how institutions write and talk about people. And language has been a part of the way society and institutions separate Black Americans and obviously how they value their humanity. So I think it's really important how when you are reading, I I did write a you know paper in college about exploring the capital B versus the lowercase b, right? And what does it mean? Because if you go through the history of African Americans in America, you will see the various uses and how people have used that lowercase b as a symbol of disrespect versus not knowing or people don't know what is the correct term. Also, what the fact is that a lot of people, um, I think because being Black is so political or if you're mixed race, you don't always want to choose a side that the term black, um, similar to the color, the pigment, it's intense, right? It's deep. And saying African-American, I feel like for some people makes it feel less intense. So similar to contemporary art and how it explores race, the social construction of race is very dominant in social sciences. Now, if you have a biological view on race, it's actually seen as more controversial. And when we look at race, we reference generations, right? Culture and obviously how we look. So if you know, my favorite pastime until recently was watching Vanderpump Rules. 
like I have no clue what it is about like LA and restaurant drama, but it's something, right? So Max, who was actually new to last season or this past season just got wrapped up, was actually called out for a racist post. I think it was a while ago. I, he was like, he's in his 20s right now, but it involved the N-word. Um, so at face value, it's easy to chalk this up as ignorance and white privilege, right? But then he says his mom is half black, right? He just throws just a change of scenery in there. And that his grandfather, who's actually a proud African-American man, his words, um, I think his words, <laughs> raised him to be a proud African-American man, right? Proud of his lineage. Now, one can argue that uh, he is black, that he should have known better, right? That that he should know that word and the significance in the culture, right? The history of it. But then again, he also looks racially ambiguous. I mean, I don't even know if I would say racially ambiguous. I think he, I would identify him as someone who might be potentially mixed, but I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, he he's definitely black or African-American, right? And I can't tell. And this is where identifying comes into play. It wasn't until a moment like this, a moment where he was called out for a racial aggression um, that we didn't know he was black, right? And obviously, it took a moment like this for us to find this out. Now, he could have seen uh, that maybe he doesn't look like his other family members or maybe like his blackness was never called into attention, right? And this is where it gets hot and heavy. It took a racist tweet for his blackness to be called into attention, right? So I think this is where the whole white passing concept comes into play. And simply right now, we're at a the standstill in America where, you know, People are extremely proud of where they come from, right? Obviously, but how you look is a bigger impression initially to people than where you come from. And so, I mean, it's simple. Racial profiling isn't personality profiling. No one's asking you about your mom or your dad or, you know, what neighborhood you grew up in or the social economic, um, you know, spectrum that you fit into or whatever, right? It's really based on how you look. Someone looks at you and they categorize you immediately. That's it. And so I think right now, um, actors, actresses, people who we we see on our everyday screens or we see in newspaper, in gossip columns, whatever, they're, you know, taking this voice, they're saying something, but and people who are mixed race, uh, Hasley, she's also, you know, made a post that she is white passing, that people don't identify her as black. So she has to be an ally. And I think people yet have mixed feelings about this because if you're black, you're black, you're black, you're black, right? The one drop rule. But the reality is that that one drop rule was a way of isolating blackness. But right now, if someone doesn't look black, how and they don't identify as black, how do we go about, you know, understanding race at this point? So back to what I was talking about with contemporary art and how race really played an impactful role or just kind of a visual history for people who were understanding race during contemporary art. Um, one artist who I really adore, I really love his work, uh, Romer Bearden. Um, he is an African-American artist, but I would consider him white passing, right? Uh, so his Gemini at the Savoy, uh, it's a piece, it was a, it's a good, uh, 
conversation piece about the Harlem Renaissance, right? And that being said, the piece really incorporates a lot of um, jazz aspects, right? You see liveliness, you see rhythm, you see all of the connotations of Harlem during this golden age period. Um, And then also, while you're looking at this, his use of color and collage style, you'll see overall celebration of life, right? Specifically, Black life in Harlem. And we know the Harlem Renaissance served as a golden era and awakening to the values, the diversity, the culture, the beauty of African-American creativity and to the overall, you know, contribution to American history. Now, at first sight, you see um, him and you might not you know, identify him as black, but through his work, through his own, you know, experience, he identifies himself as black. And I think through this, I think right now, more than ever, looking at the work of artists who are currently working right now, who have been working um, with modern art and contemporary art, is really understanding how race has changed through our history, right? We're seeing some artists who you know, their race actually doesn't play a factor into their work, but we see them slowly getting political right now, right? Because why? Because race is a political statement, simply. Or we see artists who were political before, right? And they've always been political. And we see that race hasn't gone anywhere. We live maybe in a quote unquote diverse society, but the reality of race and the um, long lasting effects of racism are around us, right? And they haven't gone anywhere either. So I think taking a look at artists, looking at their work, right, what they create, and this is literally how they feel, what they think, right, all on a canvas, a piece of paper, in a sculpture, um, whatever form of medium that they use, and then you look at their lineage, you look at how they identify themselves, you look at who they are, um, what their ethnicity is, and it's this interesting, you know, history lesson on the impact of race and how from then, how people around them perceive their work and take into account them as an artist. I wrote a piece about a show uh, at Monique Maloche Gallery here in Chicago, Illinois. It was a group show with three artists and um, I, I was, I was really, you know, enamored by all the works, but one of the artists was mixed race, right? His works, pigments, um, I would say, were on the spectrum that I would identify his figures as black, right? Maybe mixed race, lighter skin, but black. Um, the features that he used, he obviously knew what he was doing, but it was a reflection of how he identified himself, right? In that same respect, um, there was two other female artists who were, one was lighter skin, one was darker skin, and their works were so similar to me. And it was it was an understanding of how our world shapes our understanding of ourselves. I think it's, you know, we see activists, we see people in place, right, who are more, I would say, politically Black than ever versus their appearance. And it's because something has called attention to what they identify and something has made them want to do that. I feel that being Black is an experience that it is more than just the race, right? Because there's so many people who are Black in America who might not identify as Black, who don't respect the culture, who aren't a part of the experience. And in that 
respect right now is calling everyone into question. What are you doing right now? Who are you? How do you identify? And everything along those lines. And we'd say we don't want to think about race, right? But the reality is that we have to. The reality is that race is right in our face. We can't not think about race. I mean, it's. I think it's easier to walk with your eyes closed across the street than not think about race. So I definitely, I want to, you know, kind of close up this episode uh, after talking about a lot of aspects of race, that the reality is that race is a social construct. I don't know how many times I'm going to have to say that, but it is, right? And there's ex- so many social factors that change based on how you identify yourself and how you look and how we categorize people, right? And the function of those categories and how they advance out of those categories, right? So the reality is that with race, as a social construct, we make the social construct, right? We have agreed on this social construct. We reward races based on the social construct, right? AKA racism. And we also punish people as a result of this social construct. So before you say race is too political for you, or before you write off something about yourself, really take a look at what you value and how your race plays into that. Before you go, make sure you check out my website for updates at kyramarrera.info. Check out my Instagram at Confessions of a Gallerina and my YouTube channel, Confessions of a Gallerina, and stay tuned for the next episode.